Providence, the week prior to that, was our fellowship meal, communion Sunday, whereby we didn't have an evening service, and I'm just saying that it's somewhat disconcerting, somewhat difficult to have to pick up after a two-week absence. But I thank God for the privilege, and uh, as our brother has prayed for me, I continue to plead for myself for the unction from God, from the Holy Spirit. We looked in the first week just briefly at the, the source of the fear of God, the uncovering uh, of the fear of God, uh, not trying to make a pun, but the uncovering in the garden of the fear of God after Adam and Eve sinned against God, after they rebelled against him and Adam being sought by the Lord was found hiding for fear because he knew that he was naked, but he discovered this fear, something I don't believe existed before, at least not in that same fashion or that same attitude. And then we looked at those reprobates that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 3, those of whom it is said, as he quotes Psalm 36, 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That faction, that sad faction of people who have no fear of God at all. And then we looked last time at something of the fear of God that, that brings about what we believe is the common grace of God that there are many that fear God and, and that are instrumental in bringing forth his purposes because they fear God in spite of the fact that they are not believers. Ahimelech in his behavior toward Abraham and Sarah was set forth as an example. And tonight we want to continue looking at the fear of God and turning our attention more in the several weeks ahead of us, to the fear of God among or in the people of God. And I would raise a few questions. Is not Christ our elder brother? Is the Lord Jesus Christ not our elder brother? Is he not, being our elder brother, is he not our glorious example? for our lives and behavior. And did not Paul exhort his readers, be ye imitators of me even as I also am of Christ? Did Paul not exhort us to be followers of Christ by following that pattern that Christ has set for us? And has not Peter given his Imprimatur in 1 Peter 2.21 when he said these words, For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps. We are to follow his steps. We are to seek to imitate uh, our example, our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, our king, our prophet, our great high priest. That is taught throughout the scriptures. Yea, 
Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained. Listen, this is in that context, you know, of all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And many Reformed believers, and I did it years ago, and I'm guilty of it, and, and it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong, but we fled to these verses to demonstrate the electing grace of God to those who would challenge our belief in God's sovereignty. But listen to what everything that Paul said here. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed unto the image of his Son. We are to be informed. We are to be reformed. Yes, but we are to be transformed. And we are to be conformed unto the image of Christ, his Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I read that couple of verses in 1 John. And it teaches the same thing. I'll just read again the last verse. Verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him, in Christ, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Christ is our great example, along with being our Savior being our great high priest, <laughs> being our elder brother. He is all in all, is he not? He is all things to us. And he is our example as well. Paul in, in Philippians, in that famous, if I could use that word, passage in the second chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi, at verse 5 says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. And it came to my mind and to my heart, can we not say, is it not fair to say, transposing perhaps, if that's the right word, have this fear in you. Have this fear in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this fear in you. Now let me just say that this is not a WWJD moment tonight. This is not a what would Jesus do question. It is rather who and what is Jesus and who and what does he want us to be? Who and what does he want us to be? He is the Holy One of God. Yes, he is the Holy One of God, is he not? He desires that we be the holy ones of God. Does that not seem reasonable? Does that not seem like a very plausible deduction? He wants us to follow Him. 
He wants us to be conformed unto his image. God wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And who are we? And what are we? Are we imitators like Paul spoke of himself? Be imitators of me. Why could Paul say that? Because he was an imitator of Christ. Paul spoke many words to the people of God. And as I've just said, that Christ desires, God desires that we be the holy ones of God as Christ is the holy one of God. Paul spoke astounding words to the Corinthians. Come out from among them, he said, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be to you a father. I will be your father, and you shall be to me sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Glorious promises, glorious promise. The key promise in the scriptures, that covenant promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be your father and you shall be my sons and daughters, but I want you to be my holy sons and daughters following my holy son, Jesus Christ. Having therefore these promises, Paul goes on, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Doing what? Perfecting holiness. How? In the fear of God. In the fear of God. Now you know and I know that the moment we, very likely the moment we mention the fear of God to an unbeliever or even to Someone that doesn't hold well to someone that has a penchant for separating the Old and New Testaments, all right? They're going to right away conjure up in their thinking this Old Testament God, this old man that demands this and demands that, and if you don't do that, you're going to die. They conjure that image up in their brains. Sadly, in their hearts. That's what they think of the fear of God. They don't understand the fear of God. They think it has to be this, this demanding figure that they have conjured up. But that's not the case. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. This is Paul in the New Testament. This is Paul under the new covenant. This is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. It is the fear of God that enables us to be conformed unto Christ. It is the fear of God that causes us to seek to perfect holiness. The fear of God is a means that he employs to keep us in his loving hand. It's not a bad thing, but a good thing. It's a grace, as I said several weeks ago. It's part of the grace of God. 
I was reminded of a story I heard many years ago. A little lad standing on the curb at an intersection and the officer nearby, the police officer, noticed that this little boy, probably about seven years old, standing on the, at this curb, at this intersection. The light changed three times, four times, five times. Finally, the officer went over and, and said, young lad, I'm curious, why are you standing here at the curb and you're not crossing the street when the light changes? And the little boy looked up and he said, I'm running away from home, but I'm not allowed to cross the street unless my mother or my father hold my hand. Do you understand that? He was running away from home, but he had this fear, this understanding, this teaching from his parents. God uses fear the fear of himself, this holy fear is a means to keep us in his loving hand. Is it not strange that the only two places in the New Testament where we may find the expression fear of God, I'm not saying it's the only place where we find anything about fear, we've already seen some others, but where the fear of God, those three words, that expression we find two places in the New Testament and it's really striking that they're in directly opposite, distinct contexts, yet both from the pen of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 3 that we've mentioned is Paul cites Psalm 36, and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of God. And the other place in Corinthians that we've already cited as well, where it is a plea unto Christ's likeness, unto holiness in the fear of God. You see what I'm saying? The fear of God has great latitude and great application among people in the world. Are we to understand then that conformity unto Christ involves includes, invokes even the fear of God? I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes. We maybe should ask the question following that, then did Jesus Christ fear God? Did Jesus Christ fear his Father? Isaiah 11, in the first few verses, we read these words that are somewhat familiar, especially perhaps around the holidays and so on, but please give ear to these words. And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him. Do we have any doubt? Do we have any question about who Isaiah speaks, about who God the Holy Spirit is speaking through his prophet? Do we have any doubt at all about who this is of whom he speaks? The Spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. 
and his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. Do we not all agree? Have we not over the years agreed that Isaiah, we even call it many times the gospel according to Isaiah, that he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ here. I believe that we agree. And thus we would agree with this statement that I make, the righteous branch, capital B, the righteous branch was given the spirit of the fear of Jehovah. You know that Isaiah is speaking of the same one that Jeremiah refers to as the branch when he says, Behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called. Jehovah, our righteousness, this righteous one, this righteous branch was given the spirit of the fear of Jehovah. Yes, yes, this is the very same one of whom Isaiah spoke throughout his gospel. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, I, I bring this litany before you because it seems to bounce off of Isaiah 11 that I read. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amazing, amazing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, of course, if we need any more support for this assertion in 42 of Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put, what? I have put my spirit upon him. This is Isaiah again. This is the same Isaiah that the Holy Spirit used to speak about the spirit of the fear of Jehovah resting upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry nor lift up his voice nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. All of these things he accomplishes by the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon him, resting upon him, providing all these things. Isaiah 61 again, which Christ himself, you'll recall in Luke 4, read in the synagogue. When he, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, we're told. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, what? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This Spirit, the same Spirit, the only God, the Holy Spirit, that Isaiah spoke of in chapter 11, that rested upon, that would rest upon our Lord Jesus Christ. He anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year 
of the Lord. This Jesus upon whom the Spirit was resting upon him in all these manifestations, giving him all this wisdom, giving him all this strength, giving him all this knowledge, and included in that the fear of Jehovah. This is he of whom Isaiah was speaking in 11, 1 through 3. Upon whom the Spirit shall rest. The Spirit, as I've said, of wisdom and understanding. And I'll admit, I don't tire of saying that. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Jehovah. Do not all God's people receive the same Holy Spirit at regeneration? Do they not all receive the same Holy Spirit as was resting upon Christ? With measure, in measure, not without measure, as Christ received. Huge distinction, is it not? We recall what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, at verse 4, where this is spoken of, when he says there is one body and one spirit, the same spirit that rested upon Christ is the spirit that he blew upon and gave us when we received the gift of the Holy Spirit at regeneration. There is one body and one spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ, according as Christ ordained, according as Christ shows. We receive the Spirit, but we receive it according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He himself received it without measure, John tells us in the third chapter of his gospel. A rabbi of the third century commented that the Holy Spirit who rested on the prophets did so according to the prophets' assignment. I didn't have the opportunity or the wherewithal to investigate this, but it sounds very reasonable, kind of a need-to-know basis for the prophets. The this, this Spirit rested on the prophets according to the assignment that was given the prophet. I believe that makes sense. And our God is a sensible God. But we read in, in John 3, 34 and 35, that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Without measure. That the Father hath given. The Father so loved him, we're told, that he gave him all things. The Father hath given Christ all things into his hands. He gave him all these, all these things of which we read in Isaiah 11. He received the Spirit without measure. The Father gave him the fullness of the Spirit. Everything. Everything. And we receive that same Spirit 
in measure, by measure, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But it's the same Holy Spirit. This is what we may understand from the passages out of Isaiah, which were fulfilled at the baptism of the Christ by John. When the baptizer saw the Spirit descend as a dove and remain or abide, whatever your translation might say, to abide, to remain on him. Jesus received the Spirit without measure and it remained, it abode, it continued with him, on him. And we witness this unmeasured outpouring foretold in this passage in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. John bear witness when he said, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it abode or remained upon him. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for he giveth not the Spirit by measure. Unto Christ, that is, he giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. Is this not? Is this not? the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. When he said, there shall come a root, come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Jehovah shall rest, shall abide, shall remain, shall continue upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. In other words, as we read in John, all things. The Father hath placed all things in the Son's hands, even the fear of Jehovah, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jehovah resting upon Christ involved, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus was given the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and he has given his people the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord are joined together by Isaiah. And are they not consistently joined together by God, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration? Do we not witness this frequently? You know the verses. Isaiah 33, Jehovah is exalted, verses 5 and 6, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and there shall be stability in thy times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of Jehovah is thy or his treasure. Jehovah is exalted. He hath filled Zion with justice and righteousness. There shall be stability in his times. Abundance, this sounds again something like that litany, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And the fear of Jehovah is his treasure. The fear of Jehovah is the beginning or the chief part of knowledge, 
Solomon said in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of Jehovah is the chief part of knowledge, but the foolish despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't understand exactly what he's referring to by knowledge, he gives the opposite, that is, the one that despises wisdom and instruction. Knowledge, this chief part. The fear of Jehovah is the beginning of this knowledge, this wisdom and instruction. The fear of Jehovah, the writer of Proverbs says again, is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Again, another word that's used by Isaiah, understanding and wisdom. All these blessings from the resting of the Holy Spirit in the spirit of fear on the Holy One. I believe that the conclusion that has to be reached from these things is that we are to fear God in the same manner in which His only begotten Son feared Him. It is a holy fear. It is a spiritual fear. It is a remaining or abiding fear. It is a filial fear. The fear of the sons of God toward the Father. And we are to delight in that fear as the Son of Man delighted in that fear. According to the third verse from Isaiah 11, that he shall delight in the fear of Jehovah. So we ought to delight in the fear of Jehovah, not consider it a hard thing at all, but a delightful grace, a wonder of God's grace again in keeping us in his hand by his grace. We are to delight in that fear as the Son of Man delighted in that fear. His delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. And Lord willing, we intend to look at that third verse next week. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, teach us, we pray, to fear thee aright. Teach us to follow the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to be able to say with the apostle, imitate me because I follow Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord our God, give us such a heart and may the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us, kindle that even afresh, that spirit of fear, that spirit of knowledge and understanding in the fear of Jehovah. We pray for the magnifying of thy name through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? It's taken from Philippians 2 from a couple of familiar verses that follow on that portion that we read in your hearing already. So then, my beloved, Paul goes on, even as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to work, 